Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This is Method and Madness, Episode 58, Murdered, Kristen O'Connell, Part 3. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Shortly after Kristen's murder, this call was made to the New York State Police. that out? It seems the caller is saying you want the guy that killed that girl. The caller then instructs the police to check out the trunk of a green Chevy on Main Street in Waterloo. He further states he's getting out of town because he told him not to do it. The caller has never been formally identified. Is it a legit call? Some think so, and if it is, That may indicate the possibility of someone from the surrounding area being Kristen's killer. Waterloo is about 20 miles outside of Ovid. Others have said regarding this call, it was a diversion purposefully made and intended to misdirect the police. So what's the truth? As we continue to see in the murder of Kristen O'Connell, it depends on who you ask. The main theories in Kristen's case range from wild and improbable to possible and even likely. We have yet to explore all possibilities, and the ones we do are based on police reports, investigative work, witness accounts, and information provided by Kristen herself. Let's dive in. The number one song on the Billboard charts that week was Shout by Tears for Fears. It's said to be a song about protest, encouraging youth to stand up and out against the powers that be, with lyrics like, In violent times, you shouldn't have to sell your soul. In black and white, they really, really ought to know. It takes on a different meaning when set against the backdrop of Ovid's brutal murder. Nobody should have to sell their soul for answers. Nobody should have to wait 37 years to get justice. Previously, we took a road trip to Ovid, New York, the small rural village where Kristen visited 
and where, three days later, she was brutally killed and left in a cornfield. We spoke with one of the many investigators working with the O'Connell family to try and solve Kristen's case. And we took the walk that Kristen took on August 14, 1985, and saw the cornfield. The possibility of a drug connection is one theory that's been suggested after years of interviewing witnesses, Ovid residents, and former law enforcement officers from the area. Some farmers in the Finger Lakes area had reportedly been growing marijuana in the 80s to supplement income they lost due to a winery contract gone wrong. With drug chains going from New York to Florida and the fact that Kristen had visited both places in a short amount of time begs the question, did she see something or overhear something she shouldn't have? To further add fuel to this theory comes another aspect of the case that on its own could be coincidental, but when added on to other details is seen as suspect. In comes the FBI agent. In the first episode of Kristen's story, I posed this question. Did her murder have something to do with an FBI agent? Around the first week of August, 1985, Kristen was at a nightclub in Minneapolis when a man approached her and offered to buy her a drink. He told her he was an FBI agent and asked her to lunch. Kristen was flattered and impressed. She accepted the invite and put his business card in her wallet. She later pulled the business card out of her wallet and sort of laughingly showed it off to her friends and family. And she did go meet the agent for lunch twice. But Kristen's friends and her mother say she was uncharacteristically tight-lipped after their meetings. After their second meeting together, Kristen never mentioned him again and didn't even tell her best friends what they'd discussed. Phyllis O'Connell is certain that the FBI agent's business card was in Kristen's wallet when she left for Ovid just days later. But the card has never been found since. It wasn't on the list of evidence found in Kristen's belongings, left behind in the trailer. Phyllis has searched Kristen's stuff in her bedroom, in between pages of books, in desk drawers. Is it possible that someone got wind of Kristen being in communication with an FBI agent? If Kristen, optimistic and full of life, visited Ovid in hopes of a romantic connection, but actually happened upon something she wasn't supposed to hear or see, was that motive for murder? Did she mention her friend, the FBI agent, while in Ovid? Investigators have done extensive work to find this FBI agent, one who could have been in Minneapolis in August 1985. Now, does that person, if found, have any connections to New York State or Florida? Investigators found one lead, an agent that had indeed trained in Minnesota and had also been involved in Operation Snowflake. That lead is still being investigated today.
Does the method in which Kristen was murdered indicate anything about the murderer themselves? According to a report titled Homicidal Cutthroat, the Forensic Perspective, published in 2016, cutthroat injuries are most commonly done from behind, with the victim's head held back. A cut across the neck from left to right indicates a right-handed assailant, while right to left indicates a left-handed individual. If an assailant attacks from the front, that tends to result in a short, angled wound. Many superficial wounds indicate the victim fought, and we know from the autopsy report that Kristen had many superficial stab wounds that didn't fully penetrate, as well as one broken fingernail. And what does the weapon itself say about a murder? Whereas strangulation is known to be a personal method, knives are seen as a tool of convenience, easier to obtain than a gun, and easy to conceal. If the murder occurred in a kitchen, for example, one could conclude that the weapon was possibly obtained there and then, and that the crime may have been one of passion, unplanned. The main reason, according to the Home Office 2006 Offending Crime and Justice Survey, 85% of young people who carry knives do so for protection. What are some other reasons for carrying a knife? Hunters may carry them. People working a trade, those who use knives in factory work, manufacturing work, farm work, or construction. In episode two, Noel Hotchkiss told us about a witness named Bob who claimed he saw someone throw something in a field near the hilltop bar. Was a knife ever found? The murder weapon has never been found, though it was searched for extensively. A serrated knife was found in the area of the cornfield a couple years after Kristen's murder, but was determined to have been too new, not exposed to two years of weather conditions, and couldn't possibly be the murder weapon. Nearby sporting goods shops were visited by investigators in those early days to see if there were any records of a knife, the possible murder weapon, being purchased in the days and weeks leading up to Kristen's murder. During my visit to Ovid, it was hard to imagine that someone didn't see something, hear something, or know something. Before we get into some of the work in the early days of the investigation, here is Kristen's Aunt Barb. We've been through this for, you know, going on going for 37 years, and we just hope that, you know, someone comes forward, someone knows something, and we know people know something up there and how, what happened. So we, we really um, are asking that to, if they could come forward for us and let us know. As the summer festivities were still in full swing in the Finger Lakes region, and families were squeezing in those last-minute activities before the weather shifted and kids begrudgingly headed back to school, the talk on the street shifted from parades and backyard barbecues to murder. 
In August of 1985, the village and town of Ovid, New York, were shaken up. A group of residents got together to organize a neighborhood watch as fear washed over their small village. There was a pledge to keep an eye on each other's properties and report anything suspicious. One resident became alarmed when someone called their home and hung up when the phone was answered. Were they staking the house out, the homeowner wondered? A local newspaper publisher donated the front and back page of August 28th's issue to urge the public to contact the police if they had any information about Kristen's murder. And in the beginning, the police, either out of confidence or to keep the public from panicking, said they felt sure they were capturing the killers soon. Conversations in grocery store aisles and between neighbors were full of questions, curiosity, and fear. Was the killer someone we knew? Is there a drifter coming through our community and killing women? Will there be more violence? Witnesses living opposite the cornfield on Route 139 had seen lights in the cornfield about 1 a.m. Friday morning, 24 hours after the approximate time that Kristen was killed and about 17 hours before her body was discovered. The police asked for the public's help with identifying the two cars that were seen that Wednesday night pulled up next to Kristen as she took her walk. A reminder that this was described as either a blue or green car. A week after Kristen's murder, a checkpoint was done on Route 139 without the public's knowledge to see who was traveling on Wednesday evenings between 8 p.m. and 2 a.m. One driver that was stopped was asked, did you travel this road one week ago tonight? The driver responded, yes. When asked if they'd seen anyone walking the night of August 14th, the driver responded yes. Around 1.30 a.m., they had seen two young men walking down 139, headed east toward the village, and they provided police with the names of two males that they thought it may have been. These two men, as far as we know, didn't meet or come in contact with Kristen before her walk, and they've been investigated and interviewed over the years. Still, no arrests. Detectives also looked into arrest records from the New York area all the way up to Canada to see if any connections could be made to Ovid. Senior investigator Robert Feiner said at the time, quote, there's always a Ted Bundy out there. And of course, Bundy was still fresh on everyone's minds. He was on death row by that point, but his reign of terror wasn't easily forgotten. Working alongside the police in those first few months was the O'Connell family's private investigator, Sheldon Furlong, who'd been hired when Kristen was reported missing. Those early reports include interviews with the owner of Buster's, the restaurant that Jim Vermeersh had gone to to pick up a pizza while Kristen went for her walk. While I've heard from more than one Ovid resident that they doubt Buster's would be open late on a Wednesday, the owner of Buster's, back in 85, said he was open until midnight. 
both the private investigators and the detectives had a command post set up down at Romulus Town Hall. They collectively interviewed anyone Kristen had come in contact with or may have come in contact with, business owners, Jim and his friends, neighbors who lived near the cornfield and near the trailer. People from the Golden Buck were questioned, employees as well as patrons. Both the PIs and the detectives compared notes and had noticed the same discrepancies, particularly in the timeline that some witnesses had provided as far as their whereabouts that night. On August 27th, it appeared that the collaboration between PI and state police changed. While the O'Connells waited impatiently by their phone back in Minnesota, P.I. Furlong would report back his findings until suddenly doors were being closed, literally in his face. Major Tonzi of the state police stopped taking Furlong's calls for a time. When the P.I. finally had a face-to-face with Major Tonzi, he was informed that the police didn't want him or his firm to conduct any further investigation. Tanzi added that in all his years of police work, he'd never had a private investigator work a major crime case and didn't understand why now. Tanzi also told Furlong that any information he'd received about timelines from interviews with business owners or from Ovid residents should be discounted as they wouldn't have told the PI the truth. Tanzi went on to explain that witnesses would tell accurate information to the police, however, because their information could easily be fact-checked. Still, Furlong continued his work and was able to obtain some details about the evidence gathered. There were over 300 hairs found on Kristen's body. A hat was found near the crime scene. A fiber, not from Kristen's clothing, was taken into evidence. And the police told Furlong they knew precisely where and when Kristen was murdered, but they weren't saying. Investigators came and went over the years, and there was Phyllis O'Connell every step of the way, working with the state police and hanging on to hope that with every new detective, every fresh set of eyes, her daughter's murderer would finally be caught. With the promise of improvements in technology on the horizon, maybe each time the calendar flipped from July over to August, maybe it could become a time of remembrance, of peace. In the 80s and early 90s, before forensics had really been a part of the conversation, many murders just went unsolved. But those advancements in technology have led to relief and justice in modern times. We're seeing those headlines from news outlets and on social media more and more. Announcements like, DNA solves 42-year-old cold case. Genealogical DNA identifies Jane Doe from 1980. And then, as Aunt Barb indicated, maybe it's as simple as someone knowing something and finally coming forward with key information. In December of 1985, Minnie and Ed Morin, an elderly married couple, went missing in their home state of Washington. Their bodies were found five days later in a wooded area. 
In 2012, police announced the couple had been murdered by two brothers. Only one was still alive. After his arrest, the sheriff's department said the suspect and his brother were the primary suspects all along. They just hadn't had probable cause until recently when people finally came forward to provide tips. They'd been too afraid to speak out earlier for fear of retaliation. 30-year-old Patricia Stickler was murdered in her bed in Ohio in 1985. In 2022, a man who was 17 at the time of the killing was arrested through forensic genealogy. The 1985 murder of Tanya McKinley in Pensacola, Florida, was solved in 2020 thanks to genetic genealogy testing when a cigarette found at the crime scene was tested and led to a relative of the man they ultimately connected to the murder. Let's take a break. On September 25, 1985, a headline out of a Rochester paper said, slaying no longer the talk of Ovid, but investigation, reaction, continues. In that article, former sergeant for the Seneca County Sheriff's Office, Robert Favreau, said, quote, People are lightening up. My opinion is most of them have forgotten it already. Perhaps that was Favreau's way of implying that residents felt safe, but his assertion that most people had forgotten Kristen's murder a little over a month later was misguided. Ovid residents, 37 years later, are still actively talking about Kristen. After the release of episode one of this series, I received an email from a married couple in Ovid who expressed their sadness over the whole situation and wanted Phyllis O'Connell to know how much the people in town still speak of her with kindness and concern. This was so touching to receive and meant the world to Phyllis. Kristen's case has made headlines for various reasons since 1985. Investigators retired. New investigators were brought on to review the case file a new task force brought in. An agonizing decade passed with no arrests. On August 14, 1995, the 10-year anniversary reminded the public that the killer had yet to be caught and provided details of the day Kristen was found. Ovid residents wondered why the case was only now being reopened, but it hadn't been closed to begin with. In 1998, State Police Senior Investigator Vincent Snyder announced that he believed an arrest was near. But Captain Mark Fisher, the head of the Special Violent Crime Investigation Team, said, quote, I've never seen a case generate so many leads that we thought would solve the case, but didn't. We thought we would close the case at least a dozen times, but the leads didn't pan out. The 25th anniversary, August 14th, 2010 came and went. And then, notably, Kristen's murder made headlines once again. In 2012, a woman named Lori McConnell contacted police and recounted a story she said she'd been holding in for decades. On the night of Kristen's murder, Lori said 
that her mom and stepfather were out of town, but had called her to ask her to go check on their house. They wanted to ensure that her stepbrother, Doug, wasn't throwing any wild parties in their absence. So, on the night of August 14th, Lori said she and a friend went to her mother's home. Everything seemed okay as they sat down in the kitchen. They were chatting. It was about 1.30 a.m. when the door opened, and to Lori's surprise, her stepbrother Doug entered the home, accompanied by some friends. They were all covered in blood. Doug looked startled, but perhaps not as startled as Lori. She told police that when she asked the men about it, they stammered and said they'd just killed a pig and were getting ready to have a pig roast. Doug remembers because it was the same day as the Interlaken Old Home Days, a local event, and everyone there was talking about the recent murder. Lori didn't speak a word of it for years. She said to spare her parents the pain of having to endure a murder trial for their son. Investigators then questioned the men who insisted it was a pig roast they'd had in Doug's backyard. And it wasn't the night that Kristen was killed. It was three days later, Saturday, August 17th. With all eyes on Doug, police, and investigators questioning him, he'd had enough and in 2014 took to an unusual measure to proclaim his innocence. In front of his home, on Route 139 in Ovid, a green fence faced the road. On that fence contained a message directed at investigators Jeff Arnold and George Gerbage. Written in purple paint were the words, We had a pig roast. Lori lied. I should have had chicken. Doug and his fellow pig roaster, Mike Swank, went on to do an interview with journalist Alex Dunbar, where they insisted they're innocent and are being targeted by police, investigators, and others, so much so that it's become harassment. I caught up with Doug. Here's some of what he had to say. In 2012, Doug was at a fish show, and he got busted for $5,000 worth of mushrooms that were found in his glove compartment. He thinks the police followed him to the show. They approached him while he was in front of his car. He was then sentenced to six months of house arrest and three years probation. Now I'm on probation for the mushrooms. They wanted to throw me in jail. Out of 300 people at the fish show, I was the last one. I refused to plead guilty. And uh, so I got six, um, six months house arrest, three years probation. Usually you'll you do half the time that since, since I was on probation and my stepsister wanted to accuse me of murder, I got to do the whole three years. Yeah. I got, I got ripped. You know, I got screwed. You know what I'm saying? I absolutely got screwed because it, most people get off half the time. So my stepsister calls me. Remember when we seen you covered in blood? And I'm like, yeah, it's a pig roast. And uh, she, she, she basically accused me of murder on the phone. I, I'm, flip, I'm flipping out on her. After being accused by Lori, Doug called his probation officer. From there, he tells me that his life has been a nightmare and he's being set up for murder. He provided his DNA for the mushroom's charge, 
and a second time, he says, to eliminate himself as a suspect in Kristen's murder. He even took a lie detector test. My lie detector test, I really could care less. They, they kept saying, you failed a question. I said, really? I said, when did I fail? You know something. I'm thinking, well, we all know something, but we don't know to me, kind of a trick question, but I don't even believe that. I believe I passed the whole thing. You know why? They refused to give me a copy of my lie detector test. I've been trying for months, months. Back in 2014, when Doug Zamet did his interview with journalist Alex Dunbar, the state police provided the following statement. All I can say at this point is we have interviewed people in regards to this case. As far as being a suspect or person of interest, I really can't comment on that. It is an open, ongoing investigation. I'll spare you the very specific and graphic details of the pig killing Doug relayed to me, but essentially it had happened in the back of a red El Camino with a knife. What I was interested in asking Doug was why he remembered the night of the pig roast so vividly. By the time Lori had brought it up, nearly 30 years had passed. Doug told me he roasted pigs often, so why would a random pig roast in August of 1985 be remarkable? He said the reason he remembers was it was the night his brother John showed up unexpectedly from Virginia. During my Ovid visit, Noel drove me past the house where Doug lived 10 years ago. He's not there anymore, but the green fence is. Any remnants of a message to police are long gone. Doug's stepsister, Lori McConnell, was murdered in July of 2018 by her estranged ex-boyfriend. When Kristen was nine years old, she was grieving over the death of her grandmother and wrote a poem to express herself. She wrote, the clock ticks, the hours grow near, the impatient waiting increases, and frustration begins. A lot has happened that Kristen missed. She didn't get to walk on stage and collect her diploma from college. She didn't have the chance to see a Hawaiian sunset, the paradise where she dreamed of working in the hotel industry. She didn't get to cheer from the stands as her little brother Kyle graduated high school. There was no blowing out the candles on milestone birthdays like she should have had in 1995 when she would have turned 30. Here is Phyllis O'Connell. She and I were very, very close. You know, I ha we hardly ever argued about anything. Just, you couldn't ask for a, a better daughter. All those things are gone. All of my grandchildren I would have had. And, you know, she often talked about her wedding and, and she wanted a beautiful white dress and all these things. And there were so many these kids, that guys that stopped from college and talked about Kristen and sat in our family room and just cried about how much they thought of her and 
when they when they were gonna settle down that was the kind of girl that they wanted to marry and you know it was just really touching coming up next on this series an affidavit submitted 25 years after Kristen's murder provides yet another witness account this time of a phone call pleading for help on August 14, 1985. And what a hidden report in a drawer could say about the former lead investigator. Here's today's call to action. Kristen's case can be solved. There's a petition online to get the DNA in Kristen's case tested. Please sign. If you have any information about Kristen's case and want to submit a tip, please do so by contacting Detective Pete McCadden of the New York State Police. Check the show notes for more details. You can share this episode and Kristen's story on social media. There's power in numbers, and someone knows something. To get more information about Kristen's case, visit my friends at uncovered.com and make sure to join the Facebook group, Justice for Kristen O'Connell. A lot of people helped make this episode and miniseries possible. Thank you to Courtney Fenner, Jolyn Rice, Christopher Pavlik, Noel Hotchkiss, Preston Felton, the anonymous residents of Ovid, Barbara Bear, Shannon Harris, Phil Riedel, and of course, Phyllis O'Connell. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at MethodAndMadnessPod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. It's sound edited by Mo and Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.